0: Join me in prayer. Lord, we are familiar with this passage. We have heard this story, most of us, many times. And so we know, Lord, that familiarity can be our own worst enemy. Because a passage like this, sometimes we are tempted to tune out and to say, I already know all of this. And when we do that, Lord, we miss your voice. We miss you speaking to us. Lord, if you didn't want us to hear your same words over and over again, you would not have preserved your word for us. And so, Lord, if we've heard this story many times, help us today to listen in a fresh way and let this message freshly be impressed upon our hearts by your spirit. Your word is a deep well, one that we will never get to the bottom of. And so I pray that we would dive deeper today to receive all that you have for us. Please do this, we pray, for the sake of your son. We pray in his name, amen. Thank you for being seated. Allow me to add my welcome to Jim and Aaron's. I'm Joshua Earl. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace City. Well, all of us have, at uh, one time or another, uh, risen early enough in the morning where It's dark outside still, and now that the time has changed, that'll be a little different. It should be a little brighter in the morning, but what do we do? We get up out of bed, and by the light of a a, a phone or an alarm clock or a, a, a nightlight, we find our way around the house until we can turn on a brighter light. I was talking with Michelle this week about how easily for granted we take light. We take light... For granted, or certainly electricity. How often, friends, in a storm has the power gone out and we've gone into a room to reach for a light switch only to be reminded that there is no power available to run a current from the switch to the light, and so we remain in darkness. Light is vital to human life. Without giving it any thought, in the early morning We arise and we anticipate that the sun is going to rise. We don't think about the fact that the sun is coming. We know it's coming and it's a part of our lives. The night is going to give way to the light. And if you've had the joy of going out to the ocean or getting up early enough to see the sunrise, you know that just before dawn, the sky will flash with with color and strokes of light from An invisible paintbrush will color waves and trees and fields and homes, yellows and oranges and red, what moments ago was gray and colorless. When that happens, now the the lesser light of phones and and streetlights is swallowed up in the greater light of the rising sun, our, our daily reminder of God's new mercies from the God whose first recorded words that we have are, let there be light. If you're a Christian here today, the greater light, the sun of righteousness, as the prophet Malachi said, has risen in your heart to replace all lesser lights. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to give you a number of definitions today, so if you're taking notes, get your pen ready, but theologically speaking, that light giving is called regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration is the act of God by which he imparts spiritual life in those who are spiritually dead. And regeneration is directly followed by something called conversion, our response to the gospel, whereby we turn from our sins and we place our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And this this great light, like the sun, swallows up all lesser lights and lights our path and sustains our Christian journey and gives us great joy. Now, friends, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to a crowd gathered in Jerusalem. And on that day, the sun rose upon the hearts of about 3,000 souls at Peter's preaching. I'll give this sermon a title, we'll call it God's Sovereign Grace in Regeneration. Today I'd like to consider the inner workings of God's sovereign illumination of the darkened soul to the truth of the gospel and bringing his saving grace to those who are in darkness. And We'll put this on the screen for you. I don't do this often, but I'll condense my whole sermon into one sentence. It is, when the gospel is preached faithfully and the Spirit illumines secretly, God saves decisively. When the gospel is preached faithfully, Peter preached faithfully, and the Spirit is working to illumine the heart secretly, no one sees it happening, what happens? God saves Decisively. Now, for some today, this will be a timely reminder. You are going to need to be reminded of these truths. You're a Christian. You love the Lord. You need to be reminded of them. But for others, this will be life-changing news. And if you're a Christian here today, my prayer has been for you this week that this message, this passage, would stir your heart with joy. Peter was a man who preached with joy. He's a man who's been changed by the gospel message. Peter, good old foot in the mouth, speak too early, betraying Peter, preached a message, the gospel message with joy and lives were changed. But I've also been praying that this would give you confidence to speak the gospel, to see that this is a work of God inside the hearts of individuals and that he uses means, people like me and you, to transform Hearts. If you're not a Christian here today, I have prayed for you too. I pray that the, the Lord of glory would shine his light on your heart and that he would grant you sovereign saving grace at the preaching of his word. I'm going to give you four headings today. We'll spend time primarily on three of them. We'll look at the components of conversion. I'll just list all these out for you, and then we'll go along and and look at each one. The first is the gospel's conviction. The second is the gospel's call. Third is the gospel's comfort. And lastly, we'll look at the gospel's confirmation, but we'll focus on those first three. So number one, the gospel's conviction. The gospel's conviction. Look at verse 37 with me. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That is, when the crowd heard Peter's words, they were cut to the heart. If you want to know what Peter said in detail, you have to go back and listen to last week's message or you can read verses 22 and following. But they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So Peter has just finished preaching this, this first sermon, the first sermon of the Christian church. And he talked how God providentially overruled the fallenness of creation and sin and evil and death to bring about the exaltation of Jesus as the Messiah. By the way, what Luke has recorded for us in verses 14 to 36 is really just a full outline of Peter's sermon. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us this. It's not a word-for-word manuscript. Verse 40, he says that, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So what we have here is a summary overview of Peter's sermon of the more salient or relevant points of it. And we see here in verse 37 that even before Peter is able to delve into, dive into the comforts that are offered by the gospel, what happens to his hearers? His hearers are brought under deep conviction. They are cut to the heart at this spirit-filled preaching and message. The word pictured here is that of a soldier on a battlefield engaging in hand-to-hand combat. And the soldier has the upper hand on his opponent. That is until his enemy, through clever maneuvering, sticks him with the end of his bayonet. And immediately that soldier is disabled. He can no longer function as an aggressor. He falls to the ground. Friends, something like that is the effect of gospel preaching wherever the Holy Spirit is working to illumine the human heart, to enable a person to see their need. You might not see it on the outside. You might have no idea that this is happening on the inside. I can't judge from looking at you that God's doing anything by your faces because I can't see your heart, but that's because this is a secret work of the Spirit. The Spirit illumines the heart to see Christ, and especially to see how it was their sin that necessitated the cross. Peter sufficiently showed his hearers that they had Rejected the Messiah of God, the only way of salvation. He showed them that by their crucifixion of Jesus, they literally killed the hope of Israel, their deliverer, even though God raised him up. And God testified to Jesus' Lordship, but they themselves had rejected it. And as Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 says, if you reject the sacrifice, if you reject the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You see, friends, we see why the crowd responded in the way that they did. And my friend, there is no other more appropriate response when we rightly understand the role that we have played in the crucifixion of the only Savior. Now, we might hear that phrase and be tempted to think, I was not there. I had no part in the crucifixion of Jesus. I played no role in this. And, you know, friends, if that's us, we need to know that the majority of Peter's audience was also not there when Jesus was crucified some month and a half before. These are people visiting from all over the known world at that time. There were certainly some there in the crowd that yelled, crucify him. But the large majority likely had come from someplace else in the world. And yet, isn't it interesting That in verse 23 and 36, Peter says without reservation, without exclusion, that you are the one who crucified the Lord of glory. And none of these people disagreed with Peter because they asked in verse 37, what do we do about this? How can we make amends for this? You see, friends, even though Peter says nothing in this sermon about atonement, he says nothing about sin, the charge against everyone in Jerusalem and against all of us is the rejection of Jesus as the Lord. To reject his lordship, to reject his deity, to reject his right... His authority over us as His creation. To turn away from His law that He gave as the standard. And to reject Christ is the same as condemning Him to death. It's the same exact thing. It is, as Hebrews 10 says, to trample underfoot the Son of God. It is to profane the blood that was shed. It is to outrage the spirit of grace. This is what these people understood to be their situation, their condition on that day, even though they may not have been in the crowd yelling crucify him. Gospel conviction then is to be pricked in the heart. It's to be disabled at the realization that i have rejected christ that i've seen and heard that he is the son of god that he came for me and lived for me and died for me and he was raised to life and exalted at the right hand of the father so i could be delivered from a life of miserable self-rule and to hear that and still say no he's not my lord he's not my savior That's the same thing as handing him over to be crucified. That's the same thing as trampling on his blood. It's the same thing as spitting in his face. John Stott, the commentator, actually in his classic work, The Cross of Christ, asks this question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we must answer, yes, we were there. Oh, but we were not there as spectators only. But as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and repentance, and worship, we have to see it as something done by us leading to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. So friends, where you sit today, have you experienced this cutting of the heart? Has the message of the gospel disabled you? So that the only question you could possibly ask is find the closest Christian and say, What do I do? What should be my response? If you have had that happen to you, that friend, that is the Holy Spirit of God working in you. That is the Holy Spirit who is overcoming your deadness. Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in trespasses and sin. And guess what? Dead people can have no hope of salvation apart from the regenerating life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God makes dead bones live. The Spirit of God makes zombies come alive. To see, that's the work of the illuminating work, to see their true condition. Do you see? Do you see that you have rejected Christ? And have you been humbled by this? Have you admitted, I don't know what to do? Do you see? Friends, sin is not simply a mess up that results in negative consequences. Sin is a rejection of... Jesus as Lord. I don't know if anyone here needs to hear that or not. But if you or I go on living our lives, turning away from the only Savior that God has provided mankind to be forgiven of their sin, not only are you trampling on his blood, you're destined for a future, an eternity, without him, and torment and punishment forever. God gives grace to the humble. God draws near to the one who admits, yeah, that's me. And when God humbles us, that's the only time we can respond to the message that is preached and renounce our self autonomy and claim a share in the grace of the cross? That's a humbling question that these people ask in verse 37. What do we do? Well, Peter answers it, and he does so, secondly, by giving the gospel's call. Peter's response in verse 38, listen, is the key that unlocks the door to our salvation, without which the gospel is incomplete. Peter lays out some of the the most important facts concerning the person and work of, of Christ. It's what that crowd needed to hear that day. But when the Holy Spirit brings conviction on an individual, they must respond to that conviction if they will be saved. And that's conversion. Conversion is our response to the gospel message. To say it in, in terms of Paul's words in Ephesians 2, it is by grace that one is saved, and it is through faith That that salvation is fulfilled or actualized or realized. That's what Peter is calling these men and women to do. He's calling them through the gospel. He's inviting them to respond in faith and believe the message preached about Jesus. Now, I want to say something. and It might be confusing at first, but I hope we'll clarify this. There is a difference between belief and trust. There is. Belief is assenting to the truth of something and say, yes, I, I, I believe that's true. I stamp my approval on it. Yes, I, I, I believe that. that. That's belief. Trust is something different, something beyond. That. Let me try to illustrate this for you. I'm going to try to illustrate the difference between belief and trust. In the 1800s, there was a Frenchman, by the name of, I think it's pronounced Charles Blondon, but I'm American, so I'll say Blondin. And uh, Charles Blondin famously walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls and back. Of course, you know that would have drawn a very large crowd. And so a large crowd saw him do this, and he went across the, the rope and he returned. And when he returned, upon his successful crossing, he turned to his audience and he offered to cross again. And they said, yeah but this time I want to go with someone on my back. And so pointing out a man in the crowd, he said, do you believe that I can get you safely across? And the man said, yes, I do. And so Blondin said, all right, hop on. And the man said, not on your life. And so he went to another person and he asked the same thing in a similar conversation. One after one, expressed great confidence in Blondin, but no one agreed to let Blondin take him across So finally, Blondin's manager, and I guess if you're a manager, you have to put up these sort of things, he stepped forward. Harry was his name. Blondin said, do you believe that I'm able to carry you across? Harry said, yes. He climbed on his back. Blondin stepped out on the rope with the man on his back, and he crossed without difficulty. When it comes to believing, when it comes to faith, when it comes to believing the truths of the gospel, Belief and trust are different. Belief looks at Jesus and his work and says, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe he died for sin. I might even say, I believe he died for my sins. But James tells us that even the demons believe such truths. And they tremble. Trust believes that he is lord they believe the same things but then they then take that information and they throw the full weight of their belief on jesus and his finished work to save that person from sin and to carry us safely into the father's arms in heaven forever you see belief is just belief trust moves you to act what we believe Will not change us unless that belief moves us to act. And this action, friends, is made possible only when the Holy Spirit does that cutting work in the heart and breathes life into the spiritually dead. Peter recognizes that the Spirit is at work here, so he calls on them to respond with trust. Look at verse 38. And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter's call to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, you might say, is both the inward and outward work of trust, of saving faith. Repentance being inward, baptism being outward. Now, repentance, here's another definition for you. Repentance, as the Greek terminology suggests, is a spiritual about-face. It is a radical reorientation of one's life after realizing that I myself have rejected the only one that is the Messiah and the Lord. Repentance, listen, repentance is not a passive feeling in a moment of sorrow over some actions that you have done. It may involve that, but that's not repentance. It isn't regret that I failed to live up to my standard or your standard or someone else's standard. Repentance is not simply regret, although it involves that. Repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is a change of mind about Jesus, whom God sent to live his perfect standard on behalf of those who cannot. And it is then throwing the full weight of our belief on Jesus to save us and to bring us safely to the Father. You see, repentance and faith are are two steps of the same motion. It's turning away and it's turning to. Louis Burkhoff, the theologian, says, the two are but different aspects of the same turning, a turning away from sin in the direction of God. And friends, listen, without these things, you don't have conversion. There is no conversion. Conversion is not only a private interchange, however. As I said, it is expressed outwardly in baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is to publicly admit that I have changed directions and that I have jumped on Jesus' back, as it were, and throw the full weight of my trust on him alone. Incidentally, that's why we as a church teach believers' baptism in water as opposed to infant baptism. And there are many good churches and Christians who teach that, that type of thing. It's a whole different theological ideology, but for us, we teach believers' baptism. And we believe it's taught very clearly here. Peter is telling his Jewish hearers that baptism, which they are well familiar with, by the way, They're well familiar with ceremonial washings. They're well familiar with John's baptism. But baptism done in Jesus' name was a public declaration that I'm jumping on Jesus' back to take me safely across. You see, for the apostles, faith and repentance and water baptism, these things are so closely interconnected that it's inconceivable for them for one to be without the other. Anytime you see new new faith happening in the church, there's there's baptism. And sometimes it's not mentioned, but it certainly is implied. And it certainly worked out in the rest of the New Testament. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 12, You were buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He almost mixes it all together as if it was one thing that happened. There is no such thing in the early church as an unbaptized believer. Baptism, by the way, cannot convert anyone, but it is the undeniable, indispensable evidence of conversion. It's the primary means that Jesus has given us to help the church know whether a person is in or out of the kingdom. That's why we, as pastors, ask you nine new members, ten new members if you've been baptized following your conversion. Baptism doesn't save you, but it is the outward evidence of your salvation. And if you refuse to be baptized, how are we supposed to know if you're in or not? It's like a wedding band. There's no law that says I need to wear this wedding band. I have the papers and the pictures to prove I was married. But should I choose not to, you have every right to question my decision. Why don't you want to show you're married to Michelle? I couldn't fault you for it. Water baptism is all the more critical, though, because Jesus did command his disciples to baptize new converts in water. Matthew 28, 19. And friends, what you have to understand, in the first century, baptism meant that you were signing up for rejection and persecution. Persecution. You know why the church was so poor by the time Paul came along and he had to take a collection up for the church in Jerusalem? It was because these believers were baptized in Jesus' name and they lost their jobs and they lost their homes and they were rejected by their families because they publicly declared that I am a follower of the Jewish Messiah and his name is Jesus. They subscribed to his doctrines They engaged in his service. They relied on his merits and they suffered for it. You see, friends, what Peter is calling for in verse 38 is indeed radical. This is why he preached many more words in verse 40 appealing to them save yourself from this crooked generation. God's judgment is coming. Save yourself. And moments of individual and corporate conversion, this call, friends, comes to people and forces them to wrestle with the question, what is worse, being rejected by people for accepting the claims of Christ or being rejected by God on judgment day for rejecting Christ? Verse 38 gives me the authority to ask this question. Have you repented and been baptized in Jesus' name, for the forgiveness of your sins? Or do you continue to reject him and his claims? Do you continue to turn away from him? Friends, there's no other sacrifice for your sin. None. Especially not the sacrifice you're offering. Or I could offer. The call is vital in our gospel proclamation. And if you're a Christian, don't leave that out of your evangelism. Don't, Where the Spirit is at work in the, the gift of regeneration, he uses means. And we need to challenge people's presuppositions and their theological framework and their worldview. And I admit this is the most uncomfortable part of evangelism. But it's the part that the Holy Spirit loves to use because he loves to get out of the way And point to Jesus as our only hope, as their only hope. And without it, without this call, sharing this life changing news, we're reducing Jesus down to one option among many one that they can take or leave. So we have the gospel's conviction, we have the gospel's call. Thirdly, we have the gospel's comfort, or we might say the gospel's promise. Look at verse 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These people are cut to the heart. They hear Peter's call to repent, and what do they see it as? They see that as an invitation to hope, an invitation to hope. I think our culture thinks that the idea of repentance is a very negative one. And it is if you're trusting in yourself. Repentance means admitting that you're wrong about Jesus. It it means admitting that I am no longer the Lord of my life. It means I can't boast in myself any longer. And this would have been especially humbling for people in Jerusalem who believe that they kept God's law faithfully until that time, only to see that someone who died on a Roman cross did it because they failed to keep the law. That's humbling. No matter your cultural context. That's why in our gospel presentation to our friends, to our neighbors, we need to be willing to say the hard truths of the gospel. Friends, we need to love people enough to help them see that they are are sinners in need of God's mercy. That's the only way hope can be given. At tax time, Michelle and I for better or for worse, use TurboTax. This is not a plug for TurboTax, but sounds like it. Um, a couple of years ago, we learned that we owed a sizable amount of taxes that we did not expect. Um, if anybody becomes a pastor here, don't do it without the help of an accountant because we, uh, there are all kinds of laws and loopholes for clergy with income tax and Social Security and Medicare. And we thought all that time that our taxes were being taken out properly. And then when tax time came around, I get on TurboTax like a dummy, and I'm sitting there working on it. And I get to the end, and I thought, wow, I definitely made a mistake. I better, I better before I send this, in, I better ask for some help. And so I called up Melita because Melita, she's not here today, but she knows taxes. And so she offered to kind of look over the taxes. And she called us, and she, she said, hey, I... I know she felt bad, but she said, I have bad news for you. You are indebted to the IRS. And that was was crushing for me and Michelle. And we looked at each other, and like these people in verse 37, we said, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Well, mercifully, and this is another story, the Lord did provide, and we were able to pay our taxes. But listen, if Melita hadn't helped us to see our true condition and the sight of the IRS, we wouldn't have been able to admit that we needed help. And we certainly wouldn't have asked for help. The grace of God and salvation only brings hope to the one who knows that they're in debt. Peter had to convince his hearers not only that they were responsible for the death of Jesus by the rejection of but also by confessing that their their guilt, that their hope of forgiveness was impossible apart from confession. That's the first step in repentance. And you who are married know the first step in reconciliation after a fight is to admit, hey, I was the wrong one. Whether you're the wrong one or not, it's to admit I'm the wrong one. Peter's saying, come confess your sin." throw the weight of your hope on Jesus. Express this in baptism and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you'll be washed clean, your debt will be forgiven, and all the saving benefits of Jesus and his work, communion with God forever, the positive righteousness that Paul will develop later in Romans, that will be applied to you, and you will become a temple for the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, this is the case for you, this is the case for your little ones, this is the case for your neighbors and your friends and your family, and to everyone else who the Lord God calls To salvation. John Stott says in his commentary the gospel is good news, not only of what Jesus did, but also of what he offers as a result. He promises to those who respond to him both the forgiveness of sins to wipe out the past, someone listen to that phrase, and the gift of the Spirit to make us new people. Together, these make up the freedom for which many are searching freedom from guilt, defilement, Judgment and self-centeredness and freedom to be the people God made and meant us to be. That can be yours if you respond in faith and trust to the gospel. Finally, we see that happen. The gospel's confirmation. It says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, and the gospel was confirmed and authenticated on that day by the widespread conversion of Jews in Jerusalem. Historians believe there were about 200,000 people in Jerusalem at that time. That means 1.5% of the population responded to Peter's word. Every one, the Lord called to himself through Peter's preaching and the Spirit's illuminating work, God saved decisively. And likely over the course of the next, the next several days, those 3,000 people were added to the church. They were baptized in the 150 or so immersion pools in Jerusalem. Man, that's incredible. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? And yet it is. And yet here we are today because of it. So we've considered the Spirit's work in conversion. We've looked at the components of conversion. Conviction, the call, the comfort, and the confirmation. Here's how I'd like to close. If you're a Christian, as you think about your unsaved loved ones, If God is sovereign over salvation, and I hope you're seeing that. We're gonna see that more as we go through the book of Acts. If God is sovereign over salvation, wouldn't it also follow that God is sovereign over the means of salvation? Acts chapter two shows us that God loves to use means. What are they? Peter's faithful preaching. And don't miss this. Prayers of the church in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. Prayers of the church. They were waiting, and they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Spirit came, and God through the Spirit is still saving people today. You may never have heard of him, but there was a New Yorker by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear who in the middle 1800s had a burden for his Dutch Reformed church, which was declining in attendance. and He would go out every day and walk the streets and he would pray for his church and for his people in his neighborhood. And His burden was so strong that he just wanted to do something about it. And so he, the Lord gave him an idea to start a Noontime prayer hour for businessmen in New York City to attend. And so he went back to his church, and he got permission from his church, and they began holding in a little restaurant a noontime prayer hour. He sent out flyers, and the first week, first week, get this, six people came and prayed with Mr. Lanfear. They sang, they encouraged each other, they they they, they read scripture. At the end of the hour, my first said, this is great, let's do it again next week, and they all agreed. So next week, sent out the flyers again, they invited some friends, 20 came to the meeting. They sang, they, they, read the, they read the scriptures, they preached the gospel, people left, and they said, let's do it again. So the next week, they did it, and 40 came. Well, soon they had to move out of the restaurant and move into a different building because there was no room in the restaurant. And so Landfair decided, you know, let's, let's move this to hap- do, something, do this every day. Let's, let's have this every day. Let's, let's open up our doors at noontime, and let's, let's invite the neighborhood. Let's invite people in to pray. Well, it just so happened at that time, 1857, the financial market crashed. People lost their savings. They lost everything in a time when there was no welfare. People were desperate. They heard about this prayer time, and soon that, That prayer time, that prayer time meeting was filled to 3,000 people. Filled an entire building. In one hour, 3,000 people were coming in and out. They weren't staying there the whole time. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering from all around New York City for prayer to hear the word. And that's a staggering number considering New York City's population at that time was only 800,000. 10,000 businessmen. News of the event began to spread. Other cities began holding these noontime prayer meetings. Churches opened their doors at noon to pray, and conversions began happening. First by the dozens, then by the hundreds, then by the thousands. And then a little thing happened. The Civil War broke out. But those prayer meetings continued. Lord only knows what would have happened in the war had those prayer meetings not continued because historians estimate that some 150,000 Confederate soldiers were saved. Because of those meetings. Well, as all periods of revival do, this one flickered out. And Jeremiah Lanfear disappeared into obscurity. But as best as we can tell, some one million people were brought to saving faith all because of one man's desire to pray and to wait. Church, God uses means. Don't you think for a second that you have nothing to contribute to this church if you're in a position where you can't offer much right now? You can offer your prayers. Your prayers are what keeps this church in operation, not your financial giving primarily. It's your prayers. It's your prayers that enable us goofy men to stand up here week after week after week and preach God's word to you. Don't leave the prayer closet. If you have someone in your life, in your house that's not saved, don't stop praying. And friend, if you're not a Christian here today and you've been listening to this and you're trying to make ends meet of it, I just want to ask, is the sun rising on you today? is the greater light coming out to replace the lesser light? And listen, maybe you've been in church all your life and you've been baptized. You sit there and you're not really sure if you've you've thrown the weight of your trust onto the back of Jesus. In a minute, we're going to sing about the worthiness of Christ to receive the glory for his great salvation. But while we're singing, what we're going to do is give an opportunity for you to pray. We're going to have the prayer team come up. We'll have just a couple of folks over here on the side. Um, I want to just encourage you, if if you're asking questions, if you wonder, am I really saved? Oh, man, these men and women would love to talk with you and pray with you. Is the sun rising on you today? Don't let this day go. Don't let the sun set. Don't let this opportunity pass because we can be confident that when the gospel is preached faithfully and the spirit illumines secretly God saves decisively